The Brothers Grimm tell a peculiar story about a boy who goes into the world to learn how to fear. He is the younger of two sons and has little knowledge or skill to offer, but he does have the odd trait of being unafraid of anything. When his father suggests to his son that he learn something useful, the son replies that what he wishes to learn is how to shudder. So begins his journey to learn fear. Now what's most interesting to me about the story is not only is this boy without fear, he is also without love or compassion. In fact, he seems unable to relate to other human beings in a human way. He throws an innocent man down the stairs of a church tower, leaving him lying crumpled on the floor before going home to bed. Later, he beats an old man with an iron bar and seems unmoved by his actions. The boy finally learns to fear when his wife, in her great wisdom, throws a bucket of cold water on him while he sleeps. That'll work. He wakes up asking, Oh, what is making me shudder? What is making me shudder, dear wife? Oh, yes. Now I know how to shudder. In the end, it's not clear to the reader, however, that the boy has really learned to fear as much as be startled or surprised. But what is fascinating about this story is the way it correlates the lack of fear with the lack of love. There is much in our world today that causes us to fear, that stirs up our anxiety, that leads us to worry. We know it's always darkest before the dawn. We know that. But as we find ourselves in the heart of our Advent waiting, it seems that things are just a bit darker than they usually are this time of year. According to a recent New York Times and CBS News poll, the shooting in California last week has us as fearful as we were of another terrorist attack right after 9-11. We are as afraid now as we were on the eve of September 11th. A group of scientists and politicians just finished a global conference in Paris to discuss climate change, and it's a conversation that makes us, makes even a wonderful 64-degree day in northeast Ohio in the middle of December. That conversation in Paris has us seeing this wonderful gift of a day as a harbinger of impending doom. And then there's the political discourse in this country a conversation that has grown polarizing on both sides, so polarizing that one has to wonder if we have the capacity within us as human beings and citizens to solve the complex problems we face and remain one nation under God. There is so much going on out there that causes us to fear and to worry and be anxious, and I haven't even talked about what's going on for you at work or at home or in your families. And in response to all that fear and anxiety and worry, we light a candle of joy, a pink candle of joy, and hear a word from the Apostle Paul that seems to be spoken from another time in a distant galaxy far, far away. Rejoice in the Lord always, always, he writes. Again, I will say, in case you didn't hear it the first time, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry 
about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you don't know the context in which these words were written, it would be very easy to pass them off as some poor attempt at the power of positive thinking. If you did not know to whom they were written and from where they were penned, these words might make you think that their author is blissfully unaware, blissfully disconnected from the realities of terrorism, insecurity, instability, and rapid social change. But nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. When Paul writes this letter, he is imprisoned, locked up. He's also unsure if and when he will be released from prison. He also writes these words deeply separated and cut off from a community of people that he loves very much, a church that it seems is experiencing tensions and troubles, fault lines within and without that are threatening to tear it apart. So when Paul writes these words, these impossible words, he's not avoiding reality, he's looking right at it. And amidst all his worry and concern, he tells those he loves the most, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. My son's Cub Scout troop recently visited a local fire station. While the kids were on tour looking at the engine all the equipment, I struck up a conversation with one of the local firemen who I like to think is my age, but I learned is 15 years younger. <laughs> Still working through that. I asked him, while we're standing there, I asked him what challenges, what are the particular challenges he faces in his work as a fireman. And as he talked, as he gave his answer, I could have sworn he was talking about the church. Firemen in Cleveland Heights, he said, work 24-hour shifts, which means there are three teams, Team A, Team B, and Team C, the first you work one day on and two days off. I was intrigued. So I asked him, are these teams, do they stay together for a long period of time? Do you mix them up intentionally from time to time? <laughs> he laughed. Not a mean laugh, just a, huh, yeah. They mostly stay together. We want them to stay together to build trust and teamwork. It helps us do our job better, he said. But sometimes, sometimes we have to shake them up a bit. Sometimes people on the team just can't seem to get along. Sometimes guys just can't work together. It was then that he paused and looked at his brothers, his firemen, his friends who were sharing stories with the kids, stories about rescuing people from fires, giving them CPR when they lost their breath, or sometimes even saving them from themselves. After a long moment, he looked at me and unknowingly preached an eight-word sermon that has stuck with me to this day. As you know, he said, the world is not perfect. First, I wasn't sure why this obvious statement, I've been preaching on it for three weeks now, why this statement would have struck me so profoundly. But in time, I realized why it did. It was the source of the profound statement that gave it its weight and its import. Here was a guy who commits his life to saving people. Here's a guy that responds to calls from people all people, regardless of who they are. Here's a guy that runs into burning buildings to save people he does not know. And he does all this, he risks his life knowing that the world is not perfect and that it never probably will be. 
And yet, it was clear to me in our conversation that he loved the men he worked with. And he found joy, great abiding joy, in the work he had been called to do. Knowing that one house burns down tonight, another one's going to burn down tomorrow. When Paul tells the church in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord always, he does so knowing that their world is far from perfect. He does so knowing they have fires burning within and without their community of faith. In other parts of his letter, we learn that the church is dealing with opponents who are causing them great suffering. We don't know the exact nature of the suffering they're causing, but Paul is concerned that it might cause his church to fall apart. He's also concerned in his letter that there is a strife. These two leaders are at battle in the church, and he's worried that they're going to fight so much that the church might be distracted from its mission and purpose. That never happens in church life. I don't know what he was worried about. But then there's this third challenge, a challenge that Paul also writes about in his letter to the Galatians and to the church in Rome. And I think it's this challenge, this third challenge, that concerns him the most as, as the people he loved face their greatest fears. He's concerned about false teachers, whom he calls dogs, who are teaching a form of Christian faith that simply does not match up with Paul's understanding of God's mercy and grace and love. They are teaching a law and circumcision-based faith that might confuse the people of Philippi into thinking, into believing that they, on their own, through their own righteousness and deeds and pronouncements, can bring about peace and stability staring down their greatest fears and anxieties, both from without the church and within, Paul worries they might come to believe that they can save themselves. In 1829, French painter and physicist Louis Daguerre presented a new photographic process to the, Amer the French Academy of Sciences. Daguerreotype, as it was called, was the first publicly announced photographic process, the first time that people out there could have their picture taken. Unfortunately, this process was not for the faint at heart. Daguerreotype was best suited for still object photography, so if you were a person and you wanted your photo taken, you had to sit still for at least 30 minutes, not moving, not even blinking if you can avoid it. In fact, being still was so important that photographers would latch down and lock down people's heads in one spot so they couldn't move lest the picture come out blurry. It's not surprising those ancient photographs, the folks look miserable. They probably were. Now, as fascinating as that process is, the process of daguerreotype, what I found most interesting in learning about it was the responses of those people who first saw themselves in a picture. The people who first saw themselves in those new pictures, that new technology, were afraid to look at the picture for any length of time. They were embarrassed by the clarity, the unaccustomed detail, and the unaccustomed truth startled them. To look upon the world and our lives and our families and our workplaces and our neighborhoods in unaccustomed detail and unaccustomed truth is startling. To see clearly all that we have and all that we have to lose causes us to worry and to be anxious and to be afraid. Which is why we need to take Paul's words today to heart, take them to heart and listen to them, 
To worry and to fear are natural human responses to suffering, violence, and uncertainty. There is, after all, an evolutionary advantage to detecting a threat, real or imaginary. There is little lost when you get afraid of a perceived threat that turns out to be harmless, but the consequences of missing a threat, an actual threat, can be disastrous. You might be embarrassed at walking down the trail. A stick causes you to jump because you think the stick was a poisonous snake. But missing the threat, missing the snake altogether, assuming it opposed no threat, can be deadly. To be human is to worry and be anxious and be afraid. It's how we're wired. It's how we're built. Which is why it's what we do with that natural anxiety and fear that matters the most. What if, what if our capacity, our capacity to face our fears, to name our worries, to own our anxieties, what if all that is directly linked with our capacity to love as Christ commands us to love? What if people who shudder are people who love? We fear evil, existential evil, real evil, because it threatens us and those we love. We are anxious about the pace of change because it means that we and those we love will have to adapt again to something new. And we worry about the future, the future we cannot control, because we want the future to be a safe place for us, for our children, for our children's children. Ask any newborn parent about the protective instinct that kicks into gear the minute you hold the child in your arms, and they will agree, love is the root of all fear. In fact, the only way I can figure you can limit your exposure to anxiety, worry, and fear, the only way you can kind of reduce its frequency in your life is to commit to not love anything or anyone at all. Focusing instead on your own well-being, your own righteousness, your own little world, which is sadly what seems to be always and forever what we do as people in our quest to create a safe and perfect world nation, church, life, family. Instead of learning to live with and name and tame our fears, we try our darndest to eliminate them. And in the process of doing that and building up the walls, our hearts grow colder and colder. And it's into that coldness that Paul shines a warm light of joy when he writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness, your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. With these powerful words, Paul is not denying our fear or whitewashing our anxiety. He is teaching us what to do with our fear and anxiety that is a natural byproduct of our commitment to love. It's never been easy to be a community of people who are centered around this command to love. Love is risky by its nature. Love always opens us up, makes us vulnerable, brings forth the possibility of losing that which we love so much. Which is why the most important thing we can do in response to all the fear and anxiety and worry is to pray. Prayer, Paul teaches us, is the pathway to joy, the pathway to gentleness, and the pathway to peace. 
because these are the attributes, the qualities of people who are connected to something more than themselves, who are connected to the flow, the eternal flow of God's mercy, love, and peace. Joy amidst sorrow cannot be purchased. Gentleness in the face of challenge cannot be manufactured. And a non-anxious presence in the midst of conflict cannot be pulled out of a bag. These are gifts given to us freely in prayer. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is our command. This is our pathway to joy and peace. Naming our fears, staring them down, seeing them with unaccustomed truth and clarity, and then hand them over to God. It's strange. I don't know why we think this way, but we think a perfect world is a world devoid of fear and anxiety and worry. But that's not the case. People who shudder, remember, are people who love. It is not only possible to be anxious and concerned and afraid and at the same time be joyful, gentle, and at peace. It's the only way people who love can live. If you follow Christ's command to love, if you open your heart and your home and your communities to the outsider, to the broken person in your midst, if you open your heart to love someone and be loved by them, you will experience fear and worry and anxiety. I guarantee it. It's just what happens. It's the cost of doing business. Which is why we cannot forget that the God who loves us and longs to support us is always near to us. It's a small line. It's a, a four-letter sentence buried in this paragraph, but it might be the most important. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul writes. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone, and then it comes. The Lord is near. Not far away, not distant. The Lord is near in that anxiety, in that worry, in that fear. The world is not perfect, and no amount of human striving or pontificating or bellyaching will ever make it so. But I'm as certain as anyone can be that the only way we can push the needle, the only way we can help get the train back on track, the only way we can make our world a better place for all kinds of people is to reflect the joyfulness, the gentleness, and the peace of Jesus Christ. And a joy that is not contingent upon circumstance, a gentleness that is persistent in the face of challenge, and a peace that passes understanding, these things are gifts that are given in a life imbued with prayer. So when you're afraid, when you're worried, when you're anxious, stop what you're doing and pray. Let your requests and your anxieties and your greatest worries and fears be made known. Name them. Give them to God. When you shudder, and shudder you will, pray. And remember that we are not alone. We live in God's world. The Lord is near. Hallelujah. And amen.